All year round, Frontier Home Products and Design has what you need to make your home comfortable and beautiful. Relax on a new Timber Tech Deck, designed by Frontier's experts. A new fireplace from Frontier Home Products Fireplace Gallery adds warmth and serenity to any home. Beauty and versatility at Frontier Home Products and Design Center, 4213 Peachtree, 5th, next to the Bayfront Highway. Frontier Home Products and Design Center. Discover a new PA contractor number PA039007. Jody Crumpy, director of the Erie City Mission Thrift Stores and Donation Center. When you shop at one of our two thrift stores or drop off items at our donation center, you're providing a meal. You're housing a man in our shelter, helping men and women overcome addiction and giving our inner city youth an opportunity to learn. I want to thank you for making a difference. This is our city, our mission. God bless you. Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. It's uh, another one of our Erie Authors conversations here. And we want to welcome uh, to the microphone here Janice Braun. She is an author of... uh, Middle grade novels in the Tales of the Teleporting Topsider series. Janice, great to see you. Thanks Thank for coming. You. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you got it. All right, we're a family show. We like to get origin stories. Tell us how you came up and uh, you know what you do for a living and how you got involved in writing, I guess. Well, I've been writing since I was a little girl and drawing pictures. I have a twin sister, and we would collaborate on our stories and we'd draw um, different illustrations for everything. So I've, oh, wow. I've been doing that for a long time. And it was back when my children were uh, preteens that I started getting more serious about my writing and my illustrating. So I've been illustrating uh, for magazines for about 20 years and um, illustrating my own middle grade novels and doing the writing too so it's been a lot of fun and your background is in education right yes i'm a retired uh high school junior high spanish teacher and i also taught english as a second language for uh many years also and i also have a degree in arts fantastic of course yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you so it, you write and illustrate those are two skills it's not easy for somebody to uh to uh, accomplish both of them uh, what's your secret you know <laughs> i don't know if it's a secret <laughs> but uh my publisher was very interested and she liked my illustrations that i sent her mm-hmm. uh samples from my magazine illustrations and uh the books have the the ebooks are the pictures are in color and in these books they're in grayscale okay so. that's cool all right so tell us a little bit about uh, the 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 series tales of the teleporting topsider. What's the premise of the the series? Well, a boy originally dropped a ring down his uh, his mother's diamond ring down a drain in his kitchen in a tussle with it with a sluggish creature that came up to the drain was a drainosaur because you don't call dinosaurs down the drain dinosaurs they're drainosaurs <laughs> so he shrunk with her and he fell into the kingdom of Drenovia and because I, I always thought oh what happens down the drain and so um, I decided this would be something to really go with 
the story originated as an ex, um, an assignment with one of my English as a second language students. We were using dictionaries, and we picked the letter D. And the, the, the boy and I decided we had the, the words drain, dinosaur, and a diamond. So uh, with that in mind, we both created stories and everything. And mine morphed into a picture book, which won a contest uh, at a writing wow. conference. And then uh, the editor that had judged the contest said, oh, Janice, this has to be bigger. It's not just a, a picture book. So it eventually morphed into a middle grade novel. So my character, David Gonzalez, travels down the drain for other um, adventures. He, that's his portal. That's his, that's uh, his portal. That's uh, his Alice thing. in Wonderland kind of thing, right? And he I mean, has a hat, a teleporting hat that oh, the yeah? dinosaurs gave him. And that enables him to, to shrink and transport down the drains. But he never knows quite where he's going to land. So that's hence the adventures in the Wuzzle Swamp, uh, Fair Haven, Rabbitosha and Foglinia, all these different uh, lands down below the drains. That's super cool. Talk about, uh, you know, to the uninitiated, which I consider me being one of them. When you talk about a middle grade uh, writing style or that that audience, mm-hmm. tell tell me about the separations and how this, this fits in all that. Well, so. middle grade is basically ages 8 to 12. Okay. And having taught the middle grades uh, in the past and doing other writing, I've discovered my voice is more middle grade. And so I just fell into that uh, slot of writing for the middle grade. Now, there are the picture books for the younger years, and even below that are the um, board books mm-hmm. and things. So um, my, my voice is a little bit more advanced than chapter books, which is right below the middle grades. And after middle grade, we have like the tween or the YA type books okay. and everything, too, and then adults. But there are some people that read everything. And, of course, really? I, yeah. do, I do that, you too, myself. You read everything, yeah. <laughs> Wow! Wow. Um, so, uh, talk about. Uh, are you you're working on your book number four here, or yes. uh, t- tell us a little bit your journey right now, well, right, or David's journey? I yeah, should David's say. journey. Yeah. yeah, he landed down in Foglinia mm-hmm. to uh, help the rabbits get back home, and there's a bird girl in the story too, and uh, she, yes, yeah, she, she's from the land of Paws. And uh, she's helping, she's a guardian at the mountain of Rabatosha for the rabbits, and they have crystals in their mountain that the Foglinians are trying to take over, and they just, uh, they are very thoughtless type of people, and they kind of bully their way around into things. So David's trying to help the rabbits return and, and help um, find peace and re- restore the kingdom down there. So it, it's quite the journey. He's He's, my book is now at the publisher. Okay. It's written. We've gone through a lot of different critique groups that I belong to. And uh, so the publisher has it, and she'll send it to the editor, and they'll look it over, and they'll send it back to me for any corrections. And then it'll go back to the publisher, and then eventually it should come out. Uh, because it's a small pro- publisher, it's Dragonfly Publishing out of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, there's a fairly quick uh, turnaround for things. Cool. So it should be out sometime in this summer, I would imagine. You know, I think a lot of uh, would-be authors would love to know kind of your your routine or your process. Uh, <laughs> do, are you uh, a big uh, 
uh, you know, do you make a lot of outlines and, and lay it out, or is it free form? T- Tell oh, me a little bit about uh, all that. Well, they call them plotters or pantsers. Oh, uh, see, I'm, I don't even know all the, all the very phraseology. Much, right? I'm very much a pantser. I don't plot things out because if I plot things out, I feel like I'm dead in the water and all my creativity is gone. Mm. So I, I just go as the flow leads me. I know the beginning. I know what's going to generally happen just in my head and, and how it's going to end. I mean, David has to go down the portal, down the drain, and he has to come back home. And there's only three days that he's allowed to be down there. So it's the adventure that once he's there, that's kind of the fun part for me to figure out what's going to happen next. But do you do this in the morning? Do you do you do you have a set time? What's the discipline? What kind of discipline? Do you have? <laughs> My husband would laugh. Discipline. Um, <laughs> I'm not a morning person at all. Yeah. Uh, so afternoon and evening are the time periods when I work. And okay. that's even true for my illustrating. And right now I have a, about 11 more illustrations to do for book four. Okay. So, so, you, so you, you have the text over and they're mm-hmm. starting to lay it out, but you've got a few more I have photographs. To, yes, and, I have to do the illustrations yet. Yeah, so. the illustrations. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, uh, um, yeah, what is your like? Do you set a goal that, or does the publisher have a have a um, something in mind that hey, we we'd like to see one of these once a year, or once every two years, or twice a year? How does that all work? Uh, once a year is about pretty good. Yeah, um, yeah. Right about now, she usually likes to have a book in by early May or late April. So um, what's what's the uh, what's the significance of that? Uh, just so that she can get the publications done and and get it through the, all the editing processes and get it um, live on the different um, whether it's ebook or or paperback or hardback. They're all print on demand, which is most a lot of publishers are doing that now. Right. Um, so she likes to have it done so that September is the big. Uh, Book push, so to speak. Is that right? Yes. Is that like universal, or mm-hmm. or for this audience at least? Or uh, yes. Okay. Yes, it is. So so I try to get things a little ahead ahead of time because I go to a lot of writers conferences mm-hmm. in the summer, and uh, some in the fall, and I just like to have the hardbacks, you know, with me live, yeah, so yeah. I can sell them. Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely, and the um, uh. You know what's 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 some of the readers' response? What do what do you hear? <laughs> and like, are do you hear from these eight, nine, ten year olds? You know, do I've they, heard. Will they write you books? It's, or write it's you letters funny. It's it? funny. You know, because Emails? writing for children, children don't the the younger children don't buy the books as much as the parents or the grandparents. Right. So I have to kind of you know market it toward those areas. But I have heard a lot more from the grandparents than I have from the kids. Uh, the kid and the grandparents say, "Oh, my children have loved this," or "My grandkids can't wait for your next book. Please send it automatically mm. to me." You know. And oh wow! So, um, yeah, I have got a couple grandparents that have said, "Automatically, when you get your next book out, just let me know." You know, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> that is that is great. Um, the, the, you've kind of homed in on David Gonzalez and his his adventures, but are there other ideas that are Kind of flying in your in your mind. Well, there's always a few, you know. In I mean, there. Would, you, would you ever want to do an adult uh, novel or? I, I don't know or, at the moment. Non I, nonfiction narrative or whatever. Or? I, at the moment, I have a quasi middle grade YA type book floating in my yeah. head, and I've got the first few chapters fleshed out, sort of. 
And uh, but it's a, a morphing process because yeah. I I know that it's going to change a bit, and I'm not sure I like the character's age. And the original premise, she had to be at least 16 to drive a car. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to change the the car ep- um, method of her transportation to a bicycle to make okay. it for a younger audience. Sure, yeah. But then the uh, she she falls into another world uh, through a thunder through a thunderstorm through another oh, wow. portal. It's another portal type adventure. <laughs> okay. But it's a female uh, yeah. protagonist. So and there's it's called the Buzzard of Whiz, which is kind of a I like puns. It's kind of weird, and uh, you know, the Wizard of Buzz, the Wizard of Oz. Buzz I, of I Wiz, get it. I get it. Yeah. You know? So um, it's a morphing process. I, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but it's it's in there. I, I see. I see uh, from what you shared with us that um, you 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 uh, that David in his travels will espouse the principle of the golden rule. Are, are you uh, are you always you always have like a morality tale somewhere in your writing? It's not overt and I don't preach, but uh the first book he's a little bit more selfish. He's young, he's a young 12-year-old, you know. And and pretty much he stays 12 for a long time, more than a year. <laughs> but um it's a he's a his character arc, he has to grow. He's really more selfish in the first book, a little less selfish in the second and the third. And in and my fourth book, he's decided that everybody has times when they hurt others. Mm. And sometimes it's without them realizing it. And how we all, you know, it's a universal thing that we don't realize we're doing sometimes. And he's becoming more aware as to, oh, you know, I guess I hurt somebody in the past too or I, actually we're talking about fireflies in the in the text yeah um but and there's other episodes um where he's you know he he's learning to make sacrifices and put the well-being of somebody else over himself and so he, he's he's growing he's learning but yeah. the golden rule principle, you know, be doing unto others as you would have them do unto you type of thing is sort of a, a, a nugget of, that's a train of thought that's woven in and out, but it doesn't hit you over the head. I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, tell me, uh, what's the biggest thing when you got into this idea of wanting to be a published author? What was the number one thing that you had no idea uh, would happen, you know, the most unexpected thing. <laughs> that I have to do so much marketing. <laughs> that you, that you're, you're the, yes. you're the master of your domain uh, when it comes to, uh, yeah, con, con, comes to doing the PR, huh? Yeah, I, I'm not much for that, but hey, you got to do it. You got to learn, and I'm learning little by little. Are you doing a lot of social media and outreach uh, that way? Or? Yes, I'm okay. trying more so on Facebook and Instagram, more that way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you'll get uh, as people kind kind of get to know you, you know. Yes. And uh, I think you should do YouTube. I think you should have a YouTube channel. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, just to, just to kind of be able to share some of these. Some of these things, you know. I'm open to possibilities. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's terrific. Well, we're excited for you. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm always amazed by, uh, you know, creative, the, the creative engine, you know, that, that it takes. Creative engine and discipline. To me, that's the key when it comes to being a published author, isn't it? 
Well, having my critique groups every week that, that I meet with them. Like I on have, a Zoom or? On, through Zoom, yes. Because yeah, yeah. some of them are all over the country. And, um, you know, that gives me, okay, I have to have the next chapter by that, by Monday or Tuesday. The accountability, huh? Yes, yes. Interesting. And then you're critiquing other folks. Then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We critique each other. And then not everybody is a children's writer. Some are, you know, um, uh, romance, Western, inspirational, historical. And then there's me with my middle grade. But I am in a separate group that is just middle grade. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting, too. And everybody gives all sorts of different ideas and, and ways to, oh, maybe you want to tweak this or maybe you want to think about that. So, and you know, as a, in a critique group, you just kind of take the good, and if you think it's going to work, you do it, and if not, you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take, you know, take it. On, I'll take that under advisement, right? <laughs> you know, because oh, I mean, you do have the you have the vision in your head. You oh know, yeah, right? and on and your paper. they're always telling me, okay, Janice, check your ratings on Amazon, and it's like getting reviews from people is is kind of difficult because people want to read it, but. They don't always want to take the time to do the reviews, and mm. Amazon is geared to the more reviews you have, the better off things are. Interesting. And so my books are on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, mm. and everything, so, you know, you keep looking for those reviews. Nice, <laughs> nice. Well, it's just been a joy to meet you. Thank you for reaching out and participating in this uh, kind of this gaggle of authors <laughs> here. And, again, it's uh, the Tales of the Teleporting Topsider you got uh, just look up Janice Brown, J- Braun. Braun, excuse me, J A N Y C E B R A W N. We say Amazon, but Barnes and Noble. And you can just Google me too. Okay, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this. I sure did. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All righty, we're we're gonna be watching what. That David Gonzalez, uh, you know, what, what adventures that he gets into. Again, <laughs> I want to share the, uh, the titles, too. The, what's the first book? This is David and the Drainosaurs. Book number one. And book two is David and the Missing Troll. All right. And the third book is David and the Midnight Unicorn. Nice. I, I get the sense that, uh, that, you know, fantasy and, you know, when you think about everything that's happening in fantasy with movies and what have you, it really, it really sings to this audience, doesn't it? Mm, they really get into yes. it. That's amazing. of course it's, it sings to me too because yeah. I want to escape. <laughs> there, there you go, Thank you so so much. Take care Thank, of yourself. Thank Appreciate you. it. With us is Gary Larson. Uh, he's one of the authors that we're featuring here on this program. And uh, Gary, welcome back to the show. We appreciate you coming on. I appreciate being here. All right, just jump right on that microphone there, buddy. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Uh, how are things? Uh, you know, we we got a bit of your story last time. You, um, are you 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 uh, were a preacher, right? At some, are you still I, doing I'm some re- of that? No, I'm a retired Presbyterian pastor, and um, I've done a lot of things since retirement. But uh, uh, during my new time available, I've I've written three books. So. Right. And uh, so I'd love to tell you about them. Well, well, first off, when you go to to write a book, what's your what's your motivation? Are you are you trying to uh, tell stories? Are you trying to give a lesson? What are what would you say? You're... I, I, yeah, I think when you boil it all down, it's all storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, life 
is story. We all have stories. We generate multiple stories every day, and uh, we remember stories, good stories we remember, uh, bad stories we don't. Um, but you know, since you know, since the earliest days when you know Naguk, you know, dragged a saber-toothed tiger back to the campfire and told the story of the kill. You know, that's what we've been doing ever ever since. And uh, so, I yeah, I love to tell stories, and I got a lot of stories. And that's that's how the first one came about, was that I'm uh, a bay rat, as uh, David Frew likes to refer to some right. of us. And uh, I spent a lot of time on the water, this water, another water, sailing, fishing, being on the water. And, and my uh, ancestry is Swedish. So they, uh, my great-grandfather sailed around the, seven, uh, the world seven times. Uh, so I've acquired a lot of sea stories, water stories, lake stories, fishing stories, sailing stories. And so I put them together in the first book. Okay. Harbor, yeah. Harbor Yarns. Harbor Yarns. Harbor Yarns. Kind of like a collective of, of, the, of uh, some of those stories or some of those legends that come down right from yeah generations. It's, yeah it's historic it's historic fiction i mm-hmm. mean so that if you read it you're going to learn some things about real fishing and real life but it's all in a in a fantasy pretend community kind of like garrison keeler's lake wobegon mm. i have created a little uh, hopefully timeless fishing village called little cove and it's about the adventures of these drunken, fighting, hard-to-live-with fishermen that are eking out a living in a timeless period. And there's no chronology to it, but people wander in and out of this village and make their uh, lives otherwise boring lives with fishing pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a, you know, a permanent proper Englishman that wanders in and starts philosophizing and there's a group of singers, of minstrels, are pushing a cart, and they start singing songs and sea shanties, and and uh, and uh, there's uh, some uh, escaped slaves that are working their way north and uh, through this obscure village, and they all they know is they want to get north. There's some uh, French fur trappers that come by. That's a chapter. So it's just all the, the whole miscellaneous stuff uh, about what would happen. Uh, in a little fishing village like that, would, would would an eerie reader kind of pick up some clues? Oh yeah, 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 oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So people, <laughs> this is about eerie, isn't it, Garrett? No, <laughs> no, it's actually not about uh, eerie. Yeah. It, it's about another little harbor deep in my mind, a smaller harbor. But uh, there's a lot of eerie stories here, including mm-hmm. uh, the eerie sea monster. Uh, which I'm, you, you need to know about if you don't. I guess yeah, I really don't know. Well, there, you need to go down to the Maritime Museum, and right inside the door is is a, a sea serpent that was on the bowsprit of an eerie boat for years and years. Mm-hmm. Now the Maritime Museum has that. Uh, you can thank me later for the plug. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, the, in the, some of the earliest writings in Erie, uh, there are uh, logs and documents about sailors seeing some sort of a serpent sea monster on Lake Erie. Mm. So, <laughs> so, 
So it's a yarn. So that's it's why it's yarn, called yeah. uh, Harbor well, Yarns. I mean, uh, yeah. Lake Erie's known to kick up a quite a yeah. quite a squall. Yeah, yeah. Being as shallow as it is, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, if I had to put money on it, I would bet there's no sea monster <laughs> right. out there. But it's fun to think. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, how the story begins is how how did Little Cove uh, come to be? Well, the uh, Sea monster uh, was approaching the shore and took a great big bite out of the land. <laughs> and uh, then he uh, spit that uh, out a ways and created an island, but there was where he bit was a cove. Mm-hmm. So that's a part of it. So it's it's a fun book. It's There's a lot in there. I, mean, I talk about the wintertime and and uh, ice, uh, uh, putting ice up to for the fish. Uh, reminiscent of of the days that I grew up with, when we would come down to the bayfront and get a block of ice for the ice box mm-hmm. before the frigid air. Um, so I uh, and my dad did that, and and I got ice, and we used to saw ice. So there's a story in there about the winter time, what happens in the winter time, and uh, you know the, doing stuff for fishes. Uh, uh, I, I, I wonder on. what what life would have been like after a winter like we had this winter, where I'm not sure the bay ever froze up right. much of than an inch or so. Yeah. You know, uh, on its coldest, it's. I mean, these because they, they depended on that ice to last them through the whole year. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, they used uh, to stack the old ice buildings. Right. You know? That's right. That's right. It, it, that would have been tough. There would have been fresh fish, but it would have been hard to keep fish, you know, right. for, for the whole year yeah. or to transport it. There's a, the, I adapted stories in this. Um, uh, there's a true story about my uh, relatives uh, out in Sherman Way who used to come to Erie and uh, he, he would sell his produce. And he'd always have a, a, a bottle of whiskey with him. Mm-hmm. So he'd uh, sell all his fruits and vegetables, and then he'd point the horses and the wagon back towards Sherman, and he'd pass out. But the, but the horses would find their way back to Sherman and, and, and end up in the barn, and you know he'd wake up in the morning and not know how he got there. So, oh, so that's an old story that I kind of twisted and yeah. turned, which is what... You know, storytellers do, I think. Right. And then made it appropriate for selling fish around Little Cove. Mm. So there was this guy who had two horses and da 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 da, and he'd take the horses out and same thing. So you take, you take, uh, real experiences and you kind of twist and turn them and add them and make them interesting and change names and places and so on. So that was fun. That was fun. And I want to I want to say, Joel, if I might, that these books are all short. Um, mm-hmm. That some people say oh, I read a book. Oh my gosh, I don't want to go for a long. You know, this is a ninety pages long. The second one's one hundred and forty. The third one's only seventy pages long. And these books have chapters in them, and they're great books to pick up, do a chapter, put it down. So they're great for the uh, airplane. They're mm-hmm. great for waiting for the doctor. Uh, they're 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 great for uh, going to the uh, room and mm-hmm. sitting for a while and yep. reading a little bit. These 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 are the kind of books they are. They're not they're not uh, uh, Hemingway. 
they're not poetic they're storytelling right. and they're 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 almost meant to be read aloud really yeah kind I of mean, sh sharing a story at bedtime kind of absolutely thing, huh? nice. I, I think in in all of them except for Tom Tom there's a caution for little kids mm. because it's a pretty pretty tough book to read Tom but we'll get to that so we're talking to Gary Larson. He's a local author here, a self-proclaimed Bay Rat. Let's talk about your second book there, Gary, as we don't want to run out of time here. Peeling back the layers. Uh, and uh, again, you, you've been pretty much writing a book a year. That's pretty prolific. Well, you know? well, actually, 2019 was Harbor Yarns. Yeah. 2021 was Peeling Back the Layers. And then 2022 last year was Tom. Peeling Back the Layers is a collection of essays, and now you just lost half of your listeners <laughs> right. because they go, essays? What? What would you know? They don't right. want to. They don't want to read essays, but essays are really wonderful things, and they're what they are is they're thought through opinions. Um, there's a little bit more meat to them than knee jerk opinions, and what I wanted to do is to dig a little bit further down under the surface in a lot of different topics, uh, things that I've thought about. And uh, and the topics are all over the, the map. Uh, Moby Dick, uh, authority, um, death, uh, self-awareness, uh, control, um, porcupines, trees, it, you know, it's just a long list of essay topics, but I think they're interesting. Of course, I'm biased, right? You know, well, I, well, I think I think this is good stuff. And I a and bit I of it and, and sounds most, like stream of consciousness. A little no, bit. I was, I was, uh, most of the people who decide to nose into my book so far have given me a lot of positive feedback. Yeah, which is which is all that an author wants. If you get somebody who comes along and says, "Oh my gosh, I just really." like your book well that that can carry you for weeks if not months you know so that's mm -hmm. that's all it takes and that's the only goal because you don't make money doing this okay right you do not please let me underscore to anybody it, it is these point zero 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 one of all authors that uh that are john grisham I, 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 I'm, you know, I'm a poor man before I, uh, uh, now I used to have a little bit of money before, so, um, right. but anyways, uh, what, 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 so what about porcupines that you wanted to write about? Well, that's a story too. And it's a brief one. Um, uh, rather than read it, I'll, I'll just tell it, uh, again, a lot of these essays, uh, have stories within them are, or our sto uh, stories, but the, the story of the porcupine, uh, the porcupines begins that it was a terribly cold winter. It was an awfully cold winter. And the porcupines were so cold, they were shivering and uh, afraid that they wouldn't survive. Hmm. So they uh, got together, all of the porcupines, and they huddled together. And uh, to, to, to kind of create a barrier against the cold and the wind and the snow. And, the, and they were, they were uh, warm, uh, except that their quills started to, to poke each other. And that made them uncomfortable. And so uh, they decided that they didn't like that. 
and and so that they uh, uh, split up and they 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 uh, started to die one after the other, and they said, "Oh, we better uh, come together," and and most of them survived the winter, and of course the moral of the story is that we have to put up with the pricks in our life. So I'm in trouble, right? <laughs> I think you'll be okay. Uh, you, think oh I'll, yeah, you think I'll be all right? <laughs> you'll be okay. Uh, but, but, you know, yeah. that, I mean, that's that's the moral to the story. I mean, <laughs> humans are wonderful and they're awful. And yeah. and, and so are porcupines, you know. They're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, I mean, you, you can't get away from uh, people upsetting you and, uh, you know, fluffing your hair and, uh, you know, uh, uh, cutting in front of you on the highway, you mm-hmm. know, but, but we need people. We need people yeah. to stay warm. So. Sounds, it sounds like you uh, give a lot of thought in uh, analyzing the human condition. I mean, again, you can't be a, you can't be a, a minister without dealing with people with all kinds of issues and, you know, and, uh, you know, human, you know, human context, right? That it seems like that's entered into your work. Absolutely, and 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 I want to underscore the fact that if I have come across as an expert in any of these books, I've failed. You know, my purpose is to stimulate discussion mm-hmm. with people, and these are these are are great books. I've I've been having a lot of fun. Uh, I've been trying. You know, you you want to get the word out, and it's so hard because a, a, a marketer costs an awful lot of money. So how do you get the word out that you're an author? Well, the latest thing I've come upon is to uh, to go to senior citizen communities, and I've had a great deal of fun with that because mm-hmm. they're always looking for activities. When I was in California this winter for a while, I, I met with two of them, and we had these great discussions. 10 or 12 each time they'd read the books and we kind of talked talked about the topics and so on. I mentioned it to uh, my uh, uh, Teal College alumni director. Hey, I'd be happy to come down and talk to your English classes about writing. He says, I'll make it happen. This is Teal College, okay? Yeah. Two months later, he says, well, Gare, he says we have an author's day coming up in April. I can't remember the date, 16th, 19th, something. He says, we have seven Teal College authors coming back for a lunch, meet and greet, and uh, students, faculty, and, 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 and to uh, go to some English classes to talk about, you know, writing and whether students might want to do it. So th- that's what's fun. Yeah, well, yeah. Th- th- that's what's fun It's mm-hmm. getting your product out there. Yep. It's like you feel when somebody calls you up and says, Joel, that was a great program. Yeah. You know, that's I what, do. Yeah, that's, it's that it's, that it's, dopamine hit, isn't it? it? It's what it, it's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, it's what it's all. Let's about. talk about Tom Gary. Uh, yeah. your your most recent book yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you're saying it's a kind of the one of the mo- the the challenging one. Well, it's <clears throat> uh, there's a, the here here's a, here's your phrase for the day. It's called a roman a clef. Not that I knew that before I wrote this, but a Roman Aklef is a book that is basically true, but all the names and places have been changed mm-hmm. to protect the innocent. So this is a uh, somewhat biographical and autobiographical 
story, a real story, but a lot of the places and names have been changed. And it's about a man I knew, and um, and and it's one of these uh, stories that I think really needs to be told. Um, and I don't want to tell you too much about it because yeah. because it'll ruin the story. Okay. But this was uh, this was uh, you know kind of like Dickens said it was the best of times and the worst of times. This guy was the best of guys and the worst of guys, mm. and he was incredibly talented and skilled, especially in nature and in so many other uh, skills. He was an excellent cook. Um, you're not going to believe this story, but um, it is true. I saw it, as as all of these stories about him are true. We were together one day at a, at a church camp, <clears throat> and uh, he was there. And he says, kids, be quiet. And he pulled out his penknife, and he started carving a stick about five inches long. Onto that stick, he, he bent it a little bit, and then onto that stick he put a rubber band. And then he took another stick, and he it was about the size of a toothpick. And he made the point sharper, and at the other end he kind of cut it in such a way that it kind of looked like feathers. And he made himself a little bow and arrow, a miniature bow and arrow. And this is the truth. There was a fly about eight feet away, buzzing on the uh, screen. And he pulled back his little bow and shot that fly right through the middle. Oh, my. And he knew he was going to do it. And and he only did one shot. Mm. And, and I can't tell you, uh, uh, he, 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 there was just remarkable, remarkable stories. Uh, there was another story of, of, of a fellow fishing at a pond uh, with a fly rod, and he was going back and forth and back and forth, as fly fishermen do, uh, mm -hmm. trying to get the fly all the way out there. And every time on the backstroke, there was a golden retriever that was jumping up trying to catch the fly. <laughs> right. So wow. all of a sudden, he caught the fly, and there's this tremendous yelp. You know, and all the rest of us, we didn't know what to do with a hook in a dog's oh tongue. My. So this guy, he brought the dog over, got it into his lap, petted it, calmed it down, talked to it, opened his mouth, took the hook, little twist, dog, and it was out. Wow. And... <clears throat> This book is filled with these kinds of stories and other interesting stories, I think. But it's also very tragic. He was a, uh, I'll tell you the beginning of it, uh, because... We're down to our last minute, but... So oh, yeah. well, quickly, i got to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, he was a Laotian refugee. Oh, wow. So the begin it, and we sponsored him to this country. And so Tom and my son did this artwork of the mm -hmm. dragon on the front as my son did the artwork in, in Harbor Yarns. So it's a great story. If you st okay. if you start this, you will not want to put it down. This, gotcha. one, this one you're going to want to finish. 
Gary Larson, uh, people find you on Amazon? You can get these books on Amazon. You can order them from any bookstore. Just walk in. Yeah. Harbor Yarns, Peeling Back the Layers, Tom. Three books. Uh, I love feedback. Uh, so uh, let me know if you like them or don't. Uh, but they're out there, and, and I hope you enjoy them. Appreciate you coming by. You're welcome. Good to be here. We're talking to eerie authors here, and we're talking uh, on the Zoom. We have Dr. Chris Majog. He is the author of A Progressive History of American Democracy Since 1945, American Dreams, Hard Realities. Uh, Chris, thank you so, so much for being on the show with us here. Well, thank you, uh, Joel, for having me. Appreciate it. All righty, we're, we're a family show. We like to get origin stories. Could you share uh, how you came up and how you got involved in, in what you do at Mercier's University as a professor and now as an author? You bet. Uh, I grew up outside Pittsburgh in a kind of small uh, industrial uh, mill town called Terenum um, and eventually came to Edinburgh uh, State College at the time for my undergraduate and met my future wife, Mary Ellen Held. And uh, long story there, but we, we had eventually ended up out west for a time, uh, Wyoming, uh, New Mexico. I got my Ph.D. in New Mexico. I spent about seven, eight years along the way there in the 1980s organizing for nonprofit uh, issue-oriented groups, including um, ranchers in Wyoming uh, around forest issues and oil and gas and stuff. Uh, got my Ph.D. and uh, ended up at the Erie Maritime Museum in 1997, just about a year ahead of our opening down there, working as the education director uh, for the museum and the Niagara. And it was around that same time I started teaching uh, part-time adjunct uh, at Mercyhurst College. And um, uh, eventually they hired me in 1999. So it's my 24th year. Wow. And, uh, yeah. The, uh, that's, that's an interesting journey. Um, uh, the, the maritime piece, how did that all come up? Well, I, you know, I spent, uh, in the early mid nineties, after I got my PhD, I worked yeah. in museums. I uh, started in my local, um, museum in my hometown, uh, volunteering and then as a paid gig uh, they hired me as their director and so I got to know museum uh, work and uh, that was my draw to the Maritime Museum. I knew nothing about ships. <laughs> Very little about the Niagara. Uh, I'm more of a, a train guy but uh, I got immersed in the world of Niagara and did day sales and you know wow. we helped to get I helped to get the education program up and running uh, with all my good friends and colleagues down there, uh, Captain Ripka and Linda Bola. But uh, my my desire was to get to the classroom uh, full time. And Mercyhurst, fortunately, uh, welcomed me in 99. I, I guess I, I, and I, I'm, I, won't, I won't do too many rabbit trails because we'll get into the, the subject matter. But I have to ask, you know, um, when you think about this generation of students in in, in university, right? Uh, history. I mean, I'm a I'm a I, I, you know a lot of people my age love history, but it's a, it's a developed fair. I'm not sure that I was all into history when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. Are you? Do you find that the same way? Generally, that's true, and I think maybe that's always been true. Yeah. Um, I think the older you get. You know, once maybe somewhere around 40 ish, you know, for most people, you start having um, 
more interest in your rear view mirror looking backward than than forward and uh, the interest in history really grows I think around middle age for most people um, but this generation uh, is has been through just an extraordinary just think about the amount of historic uh, earth-shaking traumatic in many cases yes. events that have transpired uh, since the turn of this century it's you know beginning with 9-11 and even before that the 2000 election um, the Great Recession, you know, on forward to COVID, uh, the summer of 2020, um, January 6th, um, on and on. It's just been, you know, an, an, you know, the election of the first African-American president. Right. So um, it's it's hard for me to grasp really how they're comprehending. You know, well, and then and then the school shootings moment. and, you know, the, the kind of yes. contextual trauma that uh, this generation. Yeah, I, I, I still I'm counting the plagues and seeing if we've reached 10 plagues yet, you know. Uh, yeah, you no know, kidding. It's incredible uh, what these kids ready are ready for the descent of the grasshoppers. <laughs> exactly. exactly right. Um, all right. Well, let's get to uh, American Dreams, Hard Realities. And um, I'm going to posh, you know, I'm going to throw a, a hypothesis at you and I want you to respond because within from 1945, well, I'm going to, you know, well, if you go back to 1940 and you take Erie, Pennsylvania, I mean, we were one of the centers of the universe when it came to the war effort. Right. I mean, you talk about uh, Lord Corporation and, and GE and and uh, Hammer Mill. And you know, I mean, I think they were making bazooka uh, uh, bazooka pipes. Uh, for for the war effort uh, out of paper at, at Hammer Mill, you know, I mean, just yeah. all kinds of things. Uh, and we reached our peak post-war. I mean, that's when my mom and dad came to town. They were from a they were from a, a mining town out uh, Scranton Wilkesbury area in northeastern mm-hmm. PA. Erie was the Erie was the promised land post-war, and so yeah. we've seen the the greatest highs and the lowest lows. Since 1945, and it's like that's a pretty darn quick uh, life cycle, if you will. Um, is that kind of where your book is going? Yeah, I mean, it's it's only 80 years we're talking about here. Yeah, you know, um, in historical terms, that's um, like yesterday. And again, comprehending the the different nation that we are today, just in terms of our economic life. Uh, we still do make things in America. There still is a manufacturing economy, but is obviously far more high-skilled now, far fewer workers employed in industry and manufacturing than during World War II and in the immediate years afterwards. Uh, everything has changed. You know, the status of African Americans, of women uh, across the board of our multiracial democracy, it is uh, an entirely different nation. And that watershed kind of critical turning point moment really was – World War II. It began to change everything. It set in motion the social change movements that really began to change the country um, in the general arc, you know, that, as Dr. King put it, you know, bends toward justice. But it also, you know, if we think about the 19, late 1960s, you know, that critical era of change uh, set the stage for some of the polarized um, culture and politics that we have. You know, besetting us, you know, 2023. So 
I mean, there are so many different moments along the way, you know, from 45 into the McCarthy era, into the Vietnam era of the 60s. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to see, like, you know, how things change on a dime when they're happening. So the, you know, kind of um, telescopic look backward. I mean, I set out to write this book really about 10 years ago. Uh, it was around, you know, the second term of the Obama administration when we were starting to fray uh, more mm -hmm. severely in our politics, becoming more and more polarized. And I I was trying to wrestle myself with all the changes that had transpired just in my life since the early 1960s, just thinking about how unified. I mean, we've always struggled. There have always been tensions between darkness and light and, you know, to form a more perfect union, as the founders put it. You know, we've always been tested and there have always been uh, great tensions, uh, as there were certainly in the early 60s. But there was a broader consensus of understanding of what, you know, kind of united us. There was a kind of coherent glue of understanding and of common values and aspirations. You think of that early 60s Kennedy era, uh, putting a man on the moon, ending poverty, trying to build up a, a more prosperous middle-class economy for everybody. I mean, it's, there were a lot of kind of commonly held uh, dreams, you know, that that held the country together and kind of gave us national purpose. And um, where we are today is just such a sharply different place, and and that's a rather distressing um, acknowledgement that you know I kind of came to as I wrote the book and you know, thought about, you know, different presidential administrations and the social change movements and the cultural change. I write a lot about music in the book. Um, so it's just enormous transformation, you know, not all for the good uh, in the last 80 years, as you suggest in your comments about the economy. Yeah. We, we talk a, a bit about 68, you know, being maybe a year that's similar to the kinds of times that we're having now, uh, as far as uh, you might have had a different split. Now it's this red, this red blue thing, is is different than than the generational split that seemed to be real in 1968. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, well, here's a moment. I was just talking about this this morning in class um, after the Tet Offensive the biggest military operation of the communists uh, into South Vietnam in January, February 1968. Greatest amount of American casualties suffered in those few weeks. Every week, more than 500 Americans dying. At the end of that moment, you know, that six-week period, Walter Cronkite, CBS News anchor, the revered, you know, Uncle Walter, you know, uh, that's the way it is in America. He said it every night, and you didn't doubt for a second that that's the way it was. He makes the kind of editorial comment uh, that we had done our best in Vietnam and that it was time to begin to seek an honorable withdrawal from Vietnam. And instantly, like the next day, it was a palpable collapse of faith and trust in Johnson and the administration's policy. You couldn't trust him anymore. The credibility gap with LBJ opened up wide. And he announced, you know, within days, Johnson did, that he wasn't going to run for re-election. So that's a moment. That's a revealing moment of the kind of unit. I mean, we didn't live in different media silos, you know, in terms of the polarized environment. It's so different now, red and blue. Back then, yes, differences over the war, generation gap, certainly between the youth revolt, the counterculture, the anti-war movement, and older folk. 
But even on that issue, older folk were beginning to move in essentially the position of the anti-war movement for right. different reasons, perhaps. But they're with Walter Cronkite. Yeah, we've seen enough. We need to bring our boys home. And there was that kind of consensus understanding then when we only had three channels in America and we read newspapers in America, which essentially, yeah, the editorial page might have been different. Um but essentially, we're all working from the same empirical, verifiable set of facts. And there were different emphases certainly given from one channel to another. But that Cronkite moment's telling because there were there, it was so rare to have opinion from a newsman. Right. Uh, they, in fact, when they did it, you know, Eric Severide was the guy on CBS. They labeled it, you know, underneath opinion, <laughs> editorial. Uh, for Cronkite to come out, that was a moment, you know. And so, you know, and then, of course, Weeks later, we have the King assassination and then Bobby Kennedy's assassination. And there was just national grieving and, and horror over both of those assassinations. Um, you know, even if folks would, many did, you know, who had voted for Bobby Kennedy or intended to vote for him in the primaries when they came to, the, to our state, uh, they turn around and vote for George Wallace that fall, mm. you know an independent states rights guy who was, you know, anti-federal government, anti-civil rights, a race baiter. Uh, and yet, you know, in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, there was a kind of broad consensus of national grieving, like, oh, my God, what is happening to this country? Still more holding us together than that which separated us. And yet you could kind of feel the the cracks, you know, mm -hmm. in the culture, in our politics, around race, and those will continue to uh, metastasize and to deepen, you know, as we get into the 70s and 80s. And, and I think the 1990s are really um, a kind of an underappreciated turning point. I think the more we get away from the 1990s, uh, the more historians, cultural, political historians are recognizing that as a, as a key turning point toward this kind of culture of meanness and treating the other side, the other members of the other political party as the enemy. Uh, and now we have kind of this reckless talk about civil war. We're already in a cold civil war in this country. But now, you know, there's way too many Americans who have AR-15s and are, I guess, ready to, to deploy them, you know. Uh, we'll see where this goes. But it's a tenuous moment we're in right now, fragile, and, and made all the more so, of course, by uh, the announcement yesterday. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely the uh, the the lines have been drawn. Chris Magok is our uh, guest here. He's a, a professor at Mercyhurst University, the author of the book American Dreams, Hard Realities. Uh, what do you want people to take away uh, from this book? You call it a, a progressive history, and I'm interested because, uh, uh, you know, uh, because – Progressivism has uh, has been, you know, has had its moments and then its retreats since 1945. I mean, we just talked about 1968. After all that upheaval, the voters go for Nixon. You know? Yes. yes. Although by a hair, as it turns out. By a hair, yeah. Very close, close election. But progressive, I think, I mean, as I define it in, in the book, uh, I go back to Dr. King, the arc of history bending with lots of ripples along the way, but mm -hmm. bending generally in the direction of that more perfect union. You know, they call it, we call it often the American experiment for a reason. 
you know, the greatest experiment in human history in self-government. The belief that, and this is really what progressivism, the belief that we can work out our differences through reasoned debate based on a, a generally accepted uh, basic set of facts. And through fierce legislative debate, understanding that, you know, my side's not always going to win. I'll come back the next time and hope I can persuade you or have more votes to win my side. Uh, but accepting that that's the nature of the great uh, experiment of in America, uh, in this republic that the founders handed to that generation and then every succeeding generation stewarded uh, that great experiment forward. And we need to uh, reassert our conviction in that great experiment and, and reassert our belief that the person who wins uh, at the ballot box, we need to accept the results of free and fair and secure elections and, again, hope to win the next time. You know, reason, yeah. debate, free and fair elections, this is – it's the whole ballgame uh, of everything that the soldiers hit the beaches at Normandy for, you know, stretching back to World War II. Everything that each generation has fought to defend in great battles both at home and abroad, you know, passion may have strained, as Lincoln put it, but it cannot – it should not break our bonds of affection. We're still Americans here, and we still believe generally in the same basic set of values, a better life for our children, a better life, most of us believe, uh, that should be possible for each succeeding generation. What's frightening is that fewer Americans now seemed, seem to have a firm conviction in democracy. There is a kind of rising appeal in authoritarianism, but 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 Doc, they're 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 saying they're each claiming the other guys are the authoritarians. The red is saying the blue is the authoritarian, and same thing from the blue to the red. And that right there, you put your finger on where we are, and how how do we get back to a place where? And again, a lot of this has to do, I would argue, and many have argued alongside me, uh, that the collapse of local journalism and the rise of social media, uh, yeah, everybody living in their own silos in this kind of fragmented cable uh, TV world. Uh, and I don't know. I don't have the answers as to yeah. how we get back there. But, I mean, just listen to this. Like, in, in about 2016, there was a poll uh questioning on a scale of one to 10, how essential it was to live in a democracy. 74% of those who were born before World War II uh, put it at a 10. That's almost three out of four, 10. Uh, people born since 1980, 30% uh, oh, rated it a 10, which is really frightening. So, and I don't know how we restore the, again, the consensus conviction uh, that this is the greatest democracy ever devised uh, and that it is important for us to um, reason with one another, to respect one another, to, yes, even love one another as, as fellow Americans and understand that uh, we're, we're not the enemy and we need to get back somehow to a place where uh, we once were, yeah. which we can return again. Wow. Uh, tell us about your process of writing. Um, uh, you said this book's been 10 years in the making. Uh, what, what really kicked it into gear for you? Well, uh, I, I appreciate Mercyhurst providing me with a sabbatical and giving me some time to um, really dig into you know, more of the primary sources that I was yet unfamiliar with from the 40s and 50s. 
as well as the more recent period, uh, and really to begin to kind of synthesize, to put together, you know, my own interpretation of the various important chapters uh, in American history since that period from Korea and McCarthyism uh, through the Reagan era. Uh, so it's just reading a ton, you know, of the very best, latest historical scholarship across the board, across the uh, kind of ideological spectrum left and right, and trying to, you know, pull it all together. Um, yeah, the uh, you is in just in chatting with you, you put a lot of emphasis on the media. Does that show up in the book as well? It does, um, quite a bit, actually. And um, again, I can't really overstate the importance. I think of you know the of local newspapers. You know, um, yeah. And I know it's people don't want to buy a local newspaper anymore that gets thinner and thinner and thinner because the staff has to right be reduced. Uh, it's a right self-perpetuating cycle. I don't know if any of your listeners have seen a film. There's a documentary that I can't recommend highly enough. It's called Storm Lake, and it's about Storm Lake, Iowa, and the newspaper in that town. And the very issues that you've been raising, Joel, about left and right and polarization and how do, how do we stop treating the other side as the enemy, uh, really, it's, it's just a brilliant uh, revelatory expose about not just this newspaper, but really about the state of American democracy and the importance of local journalism. And so that's at least one key, as I would uh, argue, to uh, trying to restore what we once had um, in, in terms of the sacredness of the, the democratic American experiment is supporting local journalism and not trusting the nonsense. So much of uh, what we see on Twitter and in the rest of social media is um, there's just so much anger and rage right. uh, on both sides. And it's just so unproductive. Demonizing one another isn't going to get us anywhere. Yeah. I, uh, the, I, I'm, I'm just going to say from the tenor of our conversation, uh, don't let the, the, the dog whistle of the word progressive knock you out. Cause it sounds like a very, very, um, common sense uh collab or you know common values approach to what history is about absolutely and you know i i take a fair number of shots at jimmy carter and at bill clinton you know democrats who failed uh along the the way in their administrations as i uh, find a lot of favor with um republican presidents george hw bush and good policies that he advanced the americans for disabilities act and and others, and not going into Iraq uh, when he was urged to do so in 1991, when we had Saddam cornered, uh, and he was tempted to keep on going into Baghdad, but he warned uh, that that would be a disaster for America, and it would be costly and for Iraq and for the United States, and he pulled back, and uh, he wrote a book, actually, about it, about that decision, but apparently his son didn't read the book or didn't faithfully <laughs> listen right. to the old man's advice, and, and then we end up in the worst, uh, at least dollars-wise, the worst foreign policy disaster um, in American history. It's so I mean, unfortunate. It's trillion dollars plus, and, mm -hmm. and again, Vietnam, you know, Everybody was part of that experience. Everybody mm -hmm. was connected to it. Fathers, brothers, cousins, somehow you couldn't escape Vietnam. This war, right, the Iraq and then even Afghanistan, um, it's easy to kind of insulate ourselves from it because we're not 
uh, feeling the pain of it. And yet it has cost this country in ways I think we really have not appreciated, not just financially, but I think the undercurrent of anti-government sentiment and resistance. I mean, you look at some of the insurrectionists, um, the, the, the makeup. I mean, these are aggrieved and many rightfully aggrieved veterans about their experience in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and anger at the at the federal government. Um, so I don't, you know, I, it's it's hard to 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 uh, settle on uh, an easy set of solutions because there are none. Um, but we really need to wrestle with some of the hard events that have transpired. We're going to leave it there, Chris McGog, yeah, Doctor uh, Philo- uh, Professor of History at Mercyhurst University. The uh, the book is American Dreams: Hard Realities. Thank you so so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Joel. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com.